Romans 15 verse 4 is the theme verse over all of this, and it simply says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. But as we read that, the Old Testament has a really funny way of doing that. The, the lives that, that we're going to see over the next three weeks, it's, it's not what we would expect at all. But one of the ways that we know that the Bible is true is it never presents its heroes, it never presents the characters of the Bible in these glamorous terms and ways that, that we can't relate to that. It gives us the flaws, it gives us the frailty of these people. So before we do that, before we get into what we're going to talk specifically about tonight, I, I want to explain it this way. For, for some of you, you, you remember being in high school. Some of you may not even remember being in high school, but remember being in high school, and there was that day in high school where the yearbook would come out. And you would nervously get your yearbook, and you would turn through the pages, and what's the first thing you would look for? Yes, your picture. And then you would find your picture and cry for days. Why does the photographer hate me? I mean, you, did, you, did not, you literally did not realize you were that ugly until you saw that high school picture. I don't, I don't know what it is. It was something about they just had a knack for taking the most unflattering picture of you and then putting it in the book that all your friends could see for years and years and years. And here's the worst part. Even if your picture turned out okay... Many of you have experienced this already. That was a long time ago. And you look back on your high school yearbook pictures now and think, why did my parents let me wear that? Why did my parents let me leave the house with my hair like that? And they're saying, we tried to tell you. You will regret this someday. And this is that day that you do. I have this conspiracy theory working that, that it, it goes like this. If you're bad enough as a school yearbook photographer, if, if you are really able to capture the most unflattering pictures of young people, they promote you. You go to work for the Department of Motor Vehicles and you take people's driver's license pictures from there on. I, I say all that to say... The pictures that we're going to look at over the next three weeks are not flattering. They, they are snapshots, and we can't do all of the lives of all of the people. But what we're going to see is some very unflattering pictures. And yet, God has told us in His Word that, that those are the things that He wants us to see and learn from. And yes, receive encouragement and hope from even that. So let's turn back in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And let me pray one more time. And we'll go where we're going, the direction that we're going with this tonight. God, we are so thankful 
to be able to be together and open your word together. I thank you so much for new friends, and I thank you so much for old friends um, that we can gather together and study your word. I pray that by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word tonight that you would encourage our hearts that we really would walk away changed, renewed, encouraged, challenged by what you want to say to us tonight. Thank you for giving us your word and the lives of these men and women that there is so much from which we can learn. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's going to start out very difficult because I'm going to read this from my Bible and just a fair warning, it may sound very different in yours because we have a problem from the very start. I'm reading from the English Standard Version and it says this, 1 Samuel 13 verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then he became king and when he had reigned for two years over Israel... Let's stop right there because you you're may already be confused. Your Bible doesn't say quite that. And no, there's, there's not an error in the Bible. We, we don't need to worry about that. But here's what's going on. In the, in the manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts we have, some of the numbers are just simply missing. And so the translators are, are not really sure exactly what numbers to put in there or what numbers were supposed to be there, what numbers were originally there. When this was originally written down and inspired by the Holy Spirit, whoever wrote that down knew what those numbers were. But as the process of, of transcription over the years, we lost those numbers. It's not a big deal. It's just a detail. I don't want to wade in too deeply into that other than to just explain this. We do get a hint in Acts chapter 13 that King Saul, first king of Israel, reigned over Israel for 40 years. That gives us some help there. And so really it could be that that first blank that's left there could be 40 years. But what it's going to go on to, to talk about it talks about Saul's age, and it talks about something else here. Now, one of the things that you might see, depending on the translation you have, is it may say that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. That does create a problem, though. And I'll just explain it this way. What we're going to learn in the next verses, or the next verses following that, is Saul is going to lead a, a, a garrison of 2,000 troops. His son Jonathan is going to lead a garrison of 1,000 troops. The problem with Saul being only 30 years old is that would make Jonathan 10? That would be exciting. But I don't recommend it. So it very well could be that we're not, that's not the correct number. It would seem like Saul's got to be 40 and that he's going to reign for the next 40 years and by the time he dies, he'll be 80 years old. That seems more likely, that seems more feasible, but we don't really know. And if you wish to go out for coffee afterwards and argue that with somebody, then, then you're free to do that. But that's what we're going to do with that for now. Here is the point, and here's where this, where this is going. At the end of that verse, though, it says, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. There's some confusion over that, too, but the sense of it, the right sense of it seems to be what we're about to study 
happens only two years into Saul's reign. In other words, whatever's going on here, it only took us two years to get here. It's early on in his reign. He's not been the king for a long time. Everything is new. That's what's going on. So if we start there, that, that helps us understand it only took us two years to get to this point. And Saul's story is fascinating. I love this guy. Not in the sense of he's such a successful leader, but how can someone so advantaged, so gifted, so blessed, still end up failing in the way that he did? And that's what we're going to unpack tonight as we look at this. So let's go on to verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Well, that, that might be a red flag right there because just right before that, it told us that Jonathan had led the garrison that defeated the Philistines. And it seems like at this point that Saul may be taking credit for what his own son Jonathan had done. Either way, it's proclaimed throughout the kingdom. All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to Saul at Gilgal. And here's the result of Saul stirring up that hornet's nest, of Saul starting this battle with the Philistines. Remember, Saul has 2,000 troops. Jonathan has 1,000. And Jonathan wins the first battle against the Philistines. The people of Israel became a stench to the Philistines. And here's what the Philistines did. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered. They, they gathered. They prepared. They mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, I believe it said, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Okay, figure of speech, exaggeration may be a little bit there, but Saul has stirred up a hornet's nest and it's going to set up a situation that we'll get to in a few minutes. But before we look forward and read the rest of this, of what's going to happen in the story, we need to look back. Because this is not, we didn't just randomly end up here. As someone once said, Humpty Dumpty was pushed. There was a series of events that took place that led us up to this point. And this is where I, I, I love the Old Testament because these stories are fascinating. 
So we're, we're going to work our way through, but we're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and really a little bit further than that because what has led up to all of this, it, it really starts with the period of the judges. And if you know anything about the period of judges in the Old Testament, it is not the spiritual highlight of the people of Israel. In fact, it says in several different places in Judges, there was no king in Israel, and here's the key phrase, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Some things never change, do they? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And please understand, when the Bible says that, it's not representing that as a good thing. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is not a good thing. It might sound like democracy. It's not a good thing. It was not a good thing at this time. But toward the end of that period, God did, in his mercy, God did raise up the prophet Samuel. And what we had been missing for so long was godly leadership. A prophet of the Lord who heard from the Lord, who spoke the words of God to the people. And Samuel did that. And there's an opportunity here to really bring that period of darkness to an end and really start hearing the, vo the voice of the Lord. And to Samuel's credit, he labored to bring the people back to the Lord and, and to some extent... Samuel was, was heeded by the people. But when Samuel grew old, it created a problem because Samuel's sons were not like Samuel. I think it's an amazing contrast here. Remember when Samuel was a little boy, he grew up under the priest Eli, and Eli's sons were wicked. And the Bible makes very clear the part of that responsibility for why Eli's sons were wicked was because of Eli. Not correcting them, not, not doing what he needed to do with them. But in this case, and this is interesting, the Bible never places the blame on Samuel for his sons. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is a proverb. That is generally true. But sometimes, godly parents raise godless children. And sometimes, godly children become godly despite of their parents, not because of. It's an amazing thing. In this case, the people, even the people, realized, Samuel, you're old, and your sons cannot take over for you because they are wicked. So the solution would be, it would seem like a great thing to do at this point, beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8, we, Samuel, you, you're not going to live forever, and your sons can't take over for you. What should we do? We should cry out for God's help. We should ask God, what do you want us to do in this situation? They even did that in the book of Judges. They would cry out for God's help. God would raise up a deliverer and they would overthrow the enemy. There would be peace in the land for a period of time. This time, they don't cry out for God's help. And even in Judges, they did that. But instead, as you know, they came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. 
Sometimes it's not the what of what somebody asked for that's the problem. It's the why. The motivation behind this is the problem. And the timing of it is the problem. And the Bible makes clear, yes, it's a legitimate ask. It's a valid problem. There's a a lack of leadership. We're going to need some help here. But they go to Samuel and they tell Samuel to tell God to give them a king. And the Bible makes clear at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 8, the motivation behind that, the, the reason why they were asking that, and it's two things. They said this to Samuel. It wasn't out of a desire to have godly leadership. They wanted to be like the other nations. And they wanted to have someone fight their battles. We want to be like the other nations, and we want someone to fight our battles. Let's just sit there for just a minute and look at the evil of this request. What we're saying is, we want to be like the other nations. When did God ever say, I want my people to be like everyone else? No, God, we don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. But you're my people. I've called you to be different. No, 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 God, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. And we want a king who will fight our battles. When God had already told them, If you are obedient, and if you trust me, I will fight for you. I will go ahead of you. No, 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 no. We don't want that either. We want a king. We don't want to be different, and we don't want to trust God. That's an evil request. Yes, there was a need, but their request was the wrong thing. And so let's just sit in that for just a moment as we bring our request to God, as we ask God for things, because if we're honest, I think so many of us can can admit, I've asked God for some pretty dumb things. Aren't you glad that there are some some prayers that you've prayed that God's answer was no? Great American theologian Garth Brooks once noted that some of God's greatest gifts our unanswered prayers. Maybe not the best source for theology, but that's true. God gets to know. And the reason that we pray, it's not so much about submitting our request to God, even though we're invited and we're commanded to do that. It's bringing our request in prayer under the authority of God. It's submitting those things to Him. It's laying those things at His feet. And then trusting Him with the answer. And yes, there is a time to to pray and keep praying. There is a time to persevere in prayer. But there's also a time for us to submit to God's sovereignty. And when God says no, that's the answer. It's no. And we say yes to God's no. It's not the right request. Or maybe it's just not the right timing. And prayer is not about continuing to to bombard God with that request. Prayer is to help us to align our desires and our wants with what He wants for us. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
Because what can happen and what did happen in this situation, they insisted on their own way. They were warned, you don't want to have a king. If you have a king, he's going to take from you. He's going to tax you into oblivion. It's not going to go well. And they essentially said, well, in that case, we want a king. And in God's sovereignty, you know what he did. He gave them a king. And he said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Oh, there's a lesson we're going to learn here. God's going to give them a king. Has God ever answered your prayer the way that you prayed it to teach you that what you prayed for wasn't the right thing? That's what he's going to do here. That's what we're going to learn over the next 40 years in God's sovereignty. Chapter 9, verse 2, we find out God gave them a king. And there's a long process that's going to take place here. But look what it says about Israel's king before they even know who it is. Any of that, all this is working behind the scenes. God gives them a king and it says... Chapter 9, verse 2, we learn that it's Saul. It said, and he had a son whose name was Saul. And here it is, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I mean, it, it's not even a subjective thing here. It, it, the Bible says this guy was the most handsome person. When the Bible says it, it must be true. That's exactly what they were looking for. It goes on to say, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So, what better qualifications for spiritual leadership than he's tall and he's handsome? That's exactly what they wanted. But you know what? We still haven't learned a lesson. We still haven't learned this one. But before we, we talk about that a little bit more, I, I want us to see something here a, a little bit later that takes place. We're, we're going to move through a lot of territory here. We know that Saul is tall. We know that he's handsome. We can predict that the people are going to fall in love with him. This is what we've always wanted. They're going to see him. And, yeah. The women are going to see him. And, yeah. But a funny thing happens here. The Bible gives us details for a reason. Series of events, other things happen that we don't have time to, to really unpack here. But in chapter 10, verse 1, there's an, a really important word here. We learn a little bit about this whole process. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Important detail. Get this. It says that Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it over Saul's head and anointed him king over Israel. This is before he's even introduced to the people. Nobody knows about this yet. But the key word here, I really think there's something to this is flask, the flask of oil. In chapter 16, while Saul is still king, and Samuel goes to anoint the next king, which is going to be David, God tells 
Samuel, in chapter 16, verse 13, oh, it's actually, actually verse 16, 1, and then 16, 13, he tells Samuel, fill up your horn with oil. And in verse 13, Samuel anoints David with the horn of oil. The flask is a man-made object. The horn is natural. It's a ram's horn. It's made by God. In a very subtle way, symbolizing this, Saul's anointing came from man. David's anointing came from God. And oh my goodness, there's a difference. And we still make the same mistake. We still haven't learned this lesson. And there's a lot of areas of life that we see this. There's a lot of aspects where we, we know that the pretty person gets elected. The, the good-looking person gets the job. All of those type of things. But l- l- let's narrow it down a little bit there. We still haven't learned that God looks on the outward appearance, but the, 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 the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We still like tall and handsome. Churches still like to hire tall and handsome. They want the guy that looks the part. You see the ones on TV? They're all pretty. They look good in a suit. Churches hire resumes. What they need to hire is godly men. And we've seen a lot of moral failures from leaders in the last 20 or 30 years. I'm not making light of that. I'm not saying that there aren't a variety of factors that lead up to that. And I'm not saying that that's not horrible and tragic. But when we choose genetics over godliness and we choose charisma over character, what do you think we're going to get? When, when we put a man who doesn't have the character and doesn't have the godliness, but he's just good looking and he's tall and he looks, looks nice in a suit and then we give him a big platform and shine TV lights in his face and then we act surprised when he doesn't have the character and the godliness to live that out consistently. Where was the process that prevented that in the first place? Oh my goodness, we, we still do the King Saul all over again. We, we, we still do that all the time. He looked the part. And the people are going to love it. Saul, Saul is that guy that so many of us growing up envied. We wanted to be like him. We wanted to look like him. But he didn't have the character to go along with that. Chapter 10, they introduce Saul as the king. The lot finally falls to him. And you remember what he's doing? When they finally said, here he is, he's King Saul. And Saul's crouched down, hiding among the baggage. At least he started humble. At least he started unassuming. And you can picture this moment. They narrow it down to him. And Saul, crouched down, hiding among the baggage, stands up and up and up. And it was like in this moment, like the hot donut sign at Krispy Kreme goes on, and the people, oh, look at him. Behold our king. What a beautiful man. God gave them just what they wanted. Chapter 12, as we see that, there's a warning that comes with it. God already said, I don't want you to have a king. Here's what the king's going to do to you. No, no, no. We want a king. Well, here's your king. Samuel, chapter 12, in his farewell address. He says this to the people in the hearing of Saul. I want everyone to understand this. This was a wrong decision, but God's willing to work with it. 
God knows where this is going. God knows how this is going to turn out. But they have every opportunity for it to go well. Chapter 12, verse 14. Samuel says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. If you follow the Lord and the king follows the Lord, it'll be fine. That's all they had to do all the way through the Old Testament and never, never did. And at the end of chapter 12, you can almost hear the ominous music playing in the background. Like we're, we're leading up to something and this isn't going to go well. Samuel says to the people, chapter 12, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king, every opportunity to succeed. And really, by this point, Saul has seen a measure of success. And that brings us all the way back to where we left off in 1 Samuel 13, verse 5. The Philistines are gathered to fight. There's way more of them than there are Israelites. And Saul has picked a fight. He stirred the hornet's nest. Now, how is our leader going to do? We wanted a king. Here's that moment. Here is the time when a leader is tested. How's that going to go? Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble. For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. I, I thought the king was going to you know, fight the battles and overcome all of the enemies. That, that's not the picture that we get here. And then it comes to this pivotal moment. Saul is being tested. Verse 8, he waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. To be sympathetic to Saul here, this is a difficult moment. The Philistines are scary, they're frightening, the people are scattering, and good grief. Samuel, you said to wait, I've waited. Samuel could have come earlier, and he didn't, and this goes on for a long time. But there are two critical tests in this passage for King Saul. The first one was this. He was forced to wait. You want to know something about a person when you want to get to really know a person's character? Put them in a situation where they have to wait. And I don't so much mean, let, let's not get nitpicky here. Let, let's not even talk about traffic issues and stuff like that. Because that, no. Long-term things in our lives and situations where we are, we, God puts us in a place where we have to wait on Him to do something. That's a hard place to be, but that's part of the, uh, of the process of becoming more like him and learning to trust him, is we're going to be put in situations where we have to wait on him. And there's nothing that we're going to do to speed that along, to speed that up. His instruction to us is wait. And it's going to reveal so much of our character as we do that. 
And to Saul's credit, he almost waited long enough. But here is the other part. He was forced to wait, but the people were leaving him. They started abandoning him. Wow, imagine that, Saul. These people who have never been faithful to God are also not faithful to you as the king. Their loyalty just walks out the door when things get difficult. But please understand this. This is a great thing for us to learn from King Saul being in the middle of this situation. It didn't matter what the people were doing. Samuel spoke the word of the Lord to Saul. You wait seven days and I will come and make the sacrifice. But the people are scattering. I've got to do something. If you're going to do what God says to do, at some point, at some level, you're going to lose the favor of some people. If you're going to be obedient to God in your life, you are going to see people despise you, people misunderstand you, people reject you. And I would add, you might be surprised at who it's going to be. You might have already been surprised who it was. I think Saul, as he sits there, I thought these people were loyal to me, but they're, they're, they're vanishing. They're just walking away. Two tests. And he failed both of them. To his credit, it's an extremely difficult situation. But this is the kind of a situation where a king, a godly leader, is supposed to be able to succeed, and he does not. Verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. It sounds like there's two offerings that were to be made, and Saul doesn't even get to the second one. He makes the first one, and of course, here comes Samuel. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, verse 10, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel immediately said, what have you done? Guilty conscience to begin with, because... Saul runs out to meet Samuel. And Samuel immediately says, What have you done? Watch this. Where have we seen this before? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. Okay, the question was, Saul, what have you done? And Saul has told us what the people did. He's told us what Samuel didn't do. And he's told us what the Philistines are doing. Did you eat the fruit from the tree? Well, the woman that you gave me. Some things never change, do they? And then he goes on to say, verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and have offered the burnt offering. When he says, I forced myself, that's a clear indication. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew that it was wrong. But I forced myself to do it. Please hear this. To achieve God's purposes, you will never have to disobey God. You, you will never have to go against God's word in order to build his kingdom. When you go against God's word, 
No matter how you want to try to justify that, you're not building his kingdom, you're building yours. You never have to violate what God says to do in order to achieve his purposes. And it's an amazing thing here. Saul disobeys God by sacrificing to God. Ever thought about it that way? It would seem like if you're going to disobey God anyway, why even make the sacrifice? What, what's the value in sacrificing to the God that you're disobeying in the process of making the sacrifice? And, and don't get it, it's not that, it's not that Saul wasn't a prophet, wasn't a priest, and then that he wasn't allowed to make the sacrifice. It, that, that's not the issue. It would have been okay, except that Samuel, speaking for God, had specifically told him, Saul, you wait for me seven days, and I will come and make the sacrifice. He waited seven days on the seventh day. Not after it, on the seventh day. He made the offering implying that maybe if he makes the sacrifice on the eighth day, after the seventh day, it might have been all right. But he doesn't wait for Samuel. He disobeys God by making a sacrifice to God. What does, what does that mean? That, that's, Amer that's a picture of American Christianity right there. We want God's blessing. We want God's favor. We want what God can do for us, but we want it on our terms. We want it done our way. And for many of us, the brand of Christianity that we have been sold, that, that has been promoted to us so much is that God exists for you, that you're really the center of it all, and God's there to answer your, your request and make you happy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, I, I better... I better make the sacrifice because, I mean, I, I want God to help us. I mean, we're in a bad way here. But I'm going to do it in the way that I see fit, not in the way that God has said to do. Verse 13, what happens? Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Very next verse, it simply just says, and Samuel left, and Saul's just left standing there. The consequence is this, you sinned against God, and your kingdom is not going to continue. And he lets him know Subtle terms, but he lets him know, God's already hired your replacement. But the worst part, this is about two years into Saul's reign. Saul's going to reign for 40 years. He's still going to be the king over Israel for the next 38 years, having essentially lost his authority and lost his kingdom right here at this point. 38 years of, in many ways, being a lame duck. Why? why? Why would God do it that way? Why would God not just remove him right away? Why, why wouldn't God leave him there? Well, one of the things that we're going to see right after this, chapter 14, it's a sad story because Jonathan, his son, is an honorable man. He would have been great. He's loyal. He's fearless. But Jonathan never gets to be king 
Not because he was a bad guy, but because his dad was. But it's also because the people asked for a king. And God gave them a king. I told you, this is what he's going to do. And then he does that. And the people have to live with the consequence of what they asked for and God gave them for the next 38 years. Because you wanted a king, I'm going to give you a king. And here he is. Saul's going to continue this pattern of disobedience. We're going to see it again in chapter 15. God's going to say, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. And he's going to do selective obedience again. And he's going to lose his kingdom. What we're going, to concede, we're going to see continue to happen a little bit later. Remember, we wanted the king to fight our battles. It's not Saul that gets to kill Goliath. It's Saul's replacement. Saul should have been the one fighting Goliath. He's a lame duck at that point. And a little bit later, when they come back from battle, and the women are singing and dancing and saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul goes insanely jealous. What does he do for the next 38 years? A lot of that time, he spends chasing the guy that he knows is going to be his successor, trying to kill him. We wanted a king. We got a king. And it all ends at the end of 1 Samuel when mortally wounded, Saul falls on his own sword and takes his life and it never had to be that way but that's where the story in many ways comes to an end those are the results of disobedience not just of Saul's but also of the people of Israel now I said at the beginning reading Romans 15 verse 4 that these things are supposed to give us encouragement and help us to have endurance and to give us hope that doesn't end on a very hopeful note at all but here's the wonderful part about it. God's sovereignty, God's rule, wasn't the least bit threatened by all of this. Oh, there's so much that we can learn from Saul. God's still doing something here. And God's working behind the scenes in ways that people didn't know. How's that hopeful? How's that encouraging? Because God wasn't threatened by Saul's failure. Even while Saul is still king. God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel hadn't even learned the lesson yet. Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But that's also not where the story ends. Because it gets even better than that. See, at the beginning of this story, the people of Israel, we want a king. It was the wrong request, and it was at the wrong time. But in the fullness of time, when no one, almost no one, was really looking for him, God sent another king. And this king, unlike Saul, who was well-received among his people, who the people rejoiced over, the Bible says that this king came to his own and his own people rejected him. This king that I'm talking about now wasn't necessarily tall, wasn't necessarily handsome. In fact, the Bible says that he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
didn't look the part of the Savior of the world. But when it came to obedience, when it came to that hard moment of am I going to do what my flesh tells me to do? Am I going to take the easy way? Or am I going to obey the Father? He said, not my will, but your will be done. Saul was supposed to deliver the people of Israel from all of their enemies, and he never did it. But Jesus the King, by laying down his life, conquered our ultimate enemies, sin and death. Saul's name really lives in infamy. And we went, when, when we mention the name of Saul, we say, shake our heads and, oh, what a tragedy. What a sad story. But God gave the next king, the, the, the new king that we're talking about, the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's where the hope is and that's where the encouragement is because we don't have to look to an earthly king. We don't have to find somebody who looks the part and who's tall and who's handsome. We look to King Jesus.